0: When we think about our culture and we think about what our culture is kind of enamored with, we can see that our culture is actually enamored with justice. Uh, We see today that this idea of justice, that we're kind of consumed with it. In fact, it's all over the news if you look for it. Uh, Truth is, is that our culture, when we look at it, so long as it. Identifies or is with our ideals. The truth is, is that from the criminal to the person that unintentionally offends, we want justice, and our culture wants justice. Terms like macroaggression and microaggression really have become commonplace uh, for those of us that are older than twenty-five, older than thirty. Those terms were never around when we were in school. They were never around on college campuses or in high school campuses or even in elementary campuses. But those are commonplace terms now, microaggression and macroaggression, and this idea that even offending somebody with something that's being said or a perceived perception is worthy of justice and being corrected. But the truth is, is that most of us are justice fighters when it doesn't deal with us. If it's not dealing with us, we're gung ho about justice. But if we're on the opposite end of that, if we're on the receiving end of justice, truth is, we're begging for mercy. We're passionate about justice when it's involving others, but we lose our fervor when we're the ones that's on the receiving end of it. In fact, when we're on the receiving end of it, we cry out for mercy. And therefore, when we discuss the attributes of God, we often focus on His grace and His holiness and His sovereignty and love, which are all worthy of our focus. But it's through God's justice that His faithfulness and mercy are often revealed. And so today, we're going to continue in our study in 1 Samuel, and we're going to see how understanding God's justice should actually encourage us in living a life which honors him. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Samuel this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 12, going all the way through verse 36. So let's go ahead and stand together this morning and and read this passage together. This is what it says. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord." Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, this morning as we see, as we see the desire of your heart that we might honor you with our lives, may we be encouraged to do so by seeing and understanding your justice. Father, we rejoice that you are a just God and we rejoice that you are a loving God and we rejoice that you are a faithful God and a merciful God. God, may we not push aside those parts that we don't like or that we think we don't like, but God, may we rejoice in your justice as well. May we rejoice in the fact that you are a just God. And may we rejoice that it's in your justice that we see the other attributes of who you are coming to light. Father, this morning, stir within our spirits a new passion and a new fire for you. Father, may we be moved by your spirit in understanding who you really are. And may we honor you, God, with our lives Completely and submitted to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God's justice moves his people to honor him with their lives, knowing that he is both faithful and merciful. God's justice moves His people to honor Him with their lives, knowing that He is both faithful and merciful. God's justice should produce in us, should move us toward honoring God. It's one of the downfalls today when we emphasize God's other attributes over His justice. As followers of Christ who believe that we are forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the punishment of our sin and then rising again and overcoming death as followers of Jesus we stand no longer eternally condemned because of the work of Christ. That doesn't mean though that we should not pay attention to God's justice, and it does not mean that we shouldn't understand God's justice. See, there's two errors, I think, today in Christianity. One is to stand on one side and say, simply because there's no condemnation in Christ, God is just a merciful, loving God who does not demand righteousness for his people and does not convict the spirits of his people. We need to listen to that. And on the other side of that is a God who is harsh and unloving and unforgiving and people live in torment. What God desires is that we might know him in truth, not moving from extreme to extreme, but landing at the truth, at the place that God desires as he's revealing himself to us through his word. And so honoring God with our lives will truthfully never occur on our own power. It's a direct result of who God is and His ongoing work. This morning as I was getting ready, uh, sometimes before I'll leave the house, I'll have a few minutes to kind of sit down and as I was putting on my shoes, I clicked on the TV and I'll occasionally just kind of look and see who's preaching what on a given Sunday morning. And so I came across this, this, this individual, it's a grandson of a, a kind of a well-known televangelist, um, And his emphasis has always been on kind of positive thinking. And at the end of this, he was just catching the last five minutes of this, he was selling and pushing his book. And the premise of the book was that you can build your faith in your own power. And that you have more power than you know to build your faith. And the truth is, is that that is true to some degree. We have more power than we know to build our faith. But the power is not ground in ourselves. The power is ground in Christ. Amen. And so the power is Christ's power at work within us. It's not us. And so it's not about us having the power, it's about Christ's power at work within us. And so our faith doesn't grow because of our power, but because of God. And we'll never live a life that honors Christ in the strength of our own will. We've tried that, and I'm sure you have. Each one of us have probably tried to to live for Christ in our own strength and will. It doesn't work. If I just do more of something, God's going to change this. The truth is, is that it comes as we submit to Christ and as we trust in who Christ is that He begins doing that work within our life. It doesn't mean that we don't move towards Christ. James clearly teaches us that we are to draw near to God as he draws near to us. But it is drawing near in submission to the work of God and allowing God to do that work within us. And the truth is is that honoring God will only come when we acknowledge and embrace the truth of God. We can't honor God if we don't embrace and acknowledge the truth of who he is. At the heart of our passage this morning is verse 30 through 31, which says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You see, God desires that we have a heart and therefore a mind which honors Him. In fact, He tells us at the last part of this passage that He will bring a priest that will have His heart and mind. And so we too should have His heart and mind. And what we see in this passage is we see this breakdown where God is going to show us a picture of the heart. In fact, two portraits of the heart and then he's going to move us in to understanding him with that being the motivation for why we might honor him. And so the first portrait that we see here is of the rebellious priests. The rebellious priests. This is a rebellious heart that God's showing us. And notice what it looks like He says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. This word worthless actually is used a number of times in the Old Testament and it is always used in relationship to disobedient people. It's people who are insolent against the things of God. It's people, it's referring to the immoral. It's referring to the greedy. It really is referring to those people who are idolatrous, That are finding, in essence, their value in anything other, really, than Christ. And so it says they did not know the Lord. The priest servant would come while the meat was boiling, and he was thrust it into the pan. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now here's what was happening: the Israelites were coming to the tabernacle to, or to the tent of meeting, and they were bringing that in, and they were bringing their sacrifices, and they began preparing their sacrifices. And the sacrifices were being boiled for this sacrificial meal. And the priests were already given a portion. But they would come along and stick their fork in the spoiling pot and take out more. It was, at the at heart of it really was this greed. This lack of satisfaction with, with what they had been given. This lack of contentment with what was given. And they were seeking Pleasure. It goes on and it says these priests therefore would would take and as the fat was being burned the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing give me meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. Now what in the world did that have to do? Well at first they were taking these sacrifices as greed for themselves which is simply disrespected man but the fat was the part that was being offered up to the Lord. And so before it was being boiled, what they were doing is they were desecrating the sacrifice that was being offered up. They were, in essence, mocking God. They were saying, listen, it's not important. Your offering is not important. When we look at God's word and we devalue what God is actually saying, That's kind of what's happening. God was being offered this portion of fat and the the priests were coming along saying, listen, I don't really care what God wants. I want it. It really is a contempt for the things of God and a contempt for God's heart and for his word. See, the priests had been instructed to give this as an offering to the Lord. It was his portion, and they were robbing God of his portion. When we rob God of his portion, we're actually walking in this contempt with the Lord. See, Eli's sons were greedy and they showed disdain for the offering of God. But then there was something else that was going on within them. It tells us in, in verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So here were these priests that were there for the purpose of pointing people to God. And yet the only thing that they were doing was satisfying their own pleasure. And they were walking in this immorality. See, rebellious hearts, when we're in rebellion, we're we're marked by this this pleasure-seeking, this pleasure-gathering, this lack of contentment, immorality, greed, disdain for the things of God. I think we've been there in our lives before where We know the Lord is leading us to do something and God may be asking us to let go of something and we are struggling to let go. And the reason we're struggling to let go is because that very thing that we're struggling to let go has actually moved besides or ahead of God. One of the best measures of that idolatry is can I say, yes, Lord, it's yours when the Lord asks for it, or do I walk in resentment and frustration and anger as a result of it? See, when idols are present in our life and we don't get the idol, it produces things within us. That idol could be a home. It could be approval at work. It could be value from a spouse. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be anything. And what happens often is when that idol in our life is not meeting the demands that we have, it also produces anger and frustration. It also produces discontentment. See, the truth is is that idols are nothing more than slavery. They hold us in bondage. They hold us in bondage to the sin that we were initially created with and prevent us from walking in the freedom of Christ. And the truth is is that idols will never satisfy I've never heard somebody seeking money saying, I have enough. Right? The person that's living for money will never say they have enough. The person that's living for anything will never say that they have enough. And the beauty of God is that when you seek God, it is amazing how that peace overwhelms you, isn't it? So they worshiped. The idol there of pleasure. Now one other area that rebellion was rising up was in Eli's life. The chief priest. It says here that he went to his sons. He challenged them about their immorality. And yet it says here in verse 29... Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Here's what was happening He was honoring his sons above God. This fear of man, this idolatry of man, all part of that rebellion within our own heart. this idea of not wanting to say anything because he didn't know what was going to happen with his sons. Would they reject him? Would they turn against him? See, Eli was tasked with keeping the purity of the tent of meeting, and it was his job that if they weren't going to listen to him, to remove them from that place. And he chose to walk in apathy, to do nothing. Now, in contrast to that, We see an honoring family. An honoring family. We see Eli and Elkanah and Hannah. Now think about this picture for a moment. You have these priests who are tasked with the ministry of God. And they are walking through the temple bringing immorality and mocking the very things of God. And then you have this little boy who it says here in verse 18 is minister or 19 is ministering in the temple that he's ministering in the presence of the Lord what a contrast his parents are not seeking their own pleasure but they are actually coming yearly before the Lord to offer up sacrifices and offerings they're coming with a heart of worship It says here in verse 26 that in contrast to those priests who were moving against the very things of God and that the offense was now becoming present amongst the people of Israel, it says in contrast, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So God was blessing this young boy who was faithful to him. But what's more important here is God was also blessing the faithfulness of Elkanah and Hannah. She had made this petition, and if you recall, two weeks ago we spoke about the fact that here was Hannah and she was barren and she's crying out to God. it says that God closed her womb. And we saw that God's closing of his womb of her womb was for his purpose. And she remains faithful and Her womb is opened and now look what happens. God doesn't simply just leave it there. He continues to give beyond and he brings, gives them three sons and two daughters. That's an awesome God. That's an unforeseen blessing that no one could have ever imagined. And the point is not that we're going to get what we want all the time. The point is, is that God's blessing does continue to fold out and be poured out upon those who are faithfully pursuing him. We may not see it in the moment, but we will. God's blessing is being poured out upon his people. What's interesting about that is Samuel's faith in the Lord, we can see, is tied to his folks' faith in the Lord. And what I mean by that is is that we have a picture here of parents who are lovingly coming before the Lord And we have a picture of their son lovingly serving the Lord. If I can challenge you with one thing. The most important thing that you have in a family that we can see even in this passage and amongst all the other totality of passages is your relationship with the Lord. Your relationship with the Lord will have a far greater effect on anything else with your children than anything else. If you're growing in Christ someplace, stay there. It is amazing, and one of the great deceptions that occurs within the church today and within Christianity today is the fact of children's and youth ministry. And what I mean by that is this. When we come to church, all of a sudden we begin to evaluate our children's faith on a week-by-week basis. Did you get something out of this week? Were you engaged this week? Was it wonderful this week? What did you find? Is it hopeful? Can I share with you? We don't do that in any other context. A child learning math realizes, a parent realizes, it's going to take a year for them to grab that concept. And they're in it every single day. You know what they're going to see every single day? Is your faith. By walking with them every single day. Walking with them in Christ. Brian, you used to be a a part of this church, and he's allowed me to share that example. Brian and his wife were here, and they were attending, when it was foothills, attending just as foothills. And they said, we need to go find something else for our kids. Brian and his wife shared, it's the most they've ever grown in a ministry. I remember sitting with them and saying, what does God's word actually have to say about that? who is the influencer in their life? The church is a part of it, but who's the primary influencer? And as we walked through that together, they talked about the need to stay and to stay put to grow in their own faith. And what Brian will tell you is that two years later, unbeknownst to them, their daughter, who they thought was wandering off, came to them on a given night over in Runner Park, stood upstairs called them to her room and said, I just want you to know, all this time that I I haven't wanted Jesus, tonight I made a decision to follow Jesus, and the only reason is because I've seen the change of Christ in your life. Listen, what a great example of the blessing that comes when we honor God. God is still working even when we don't see it. Our call is to be faithful to him. Our call is to be faithful to him. So, we see this picture of a rebellious priest against the honoring family, this idea of a rebellious heart against an honoring heart, one that's submitted and faithful. But God wants us to understand that his justice is part of this and that his justice is often the context in which his faithfulness and mercy are revealed. You see, God takes his glorious his glory, and his righteousness seriously. And it's through and because of his justice that God reveals both his faithfulness and mercy. In Deuteronomy 32.4, it says this, Deuteronomy 32.4, speaking of God, says simply this, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That is the God that we serve. And so what we see here is that there are four aspects of God's justice which quicken us or should quicken us to honor him. Again, serving the Lord has to be motivated by our love for God. We'll never be able to do it in our own power. And so, the first aspect of God's justice, which quickens us to honor Him, is that God has chosen us for His purpose. God has chosen us for His purpose. Look what it says here, verses 27 and 28. It says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? The Israelites were stuck in slavery. And God appointed a priest in the land. And God brought them out of that slavery, out of that bondage. And he chose Aaron for that work. In the same way, what he was saying here is, I've chosen you for this. Listen, when we understand God's justice, we understand that we are deserved of nothing apart from him. We understand that because we are sinners, that the the consequence of that sin, that wage of that sin is death. But God has chosen us. He has drawn us to himself. He has revealed himself to us. And that should cause us to rejoice. Romans 8.28 goes on and it adds this, and some of you are familiar with this verse, But it's a verse that we need to cling to. And this is what it says. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through 18 goes on. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When we see God's justice and we see that we know the truth of God, that we have been a part of those who are willing and able to confess, to repent of sin and confess Jesus as Lord, that ought to cause us to rejoice and to serve him. We were undeserved and through Christ's work we were made worthy. The second is that God uses those who honor him. Wayne Gruden says this, so as we seek to do what is right and what is just, as we seek to bring about what ought to be, we must seek to do that which is in line with God's moral character. For that is the ultimate standard of righteousness. Because God is righteous and just, he must treat people as they deserve. Therefore, he must punish that which is against him, that is sin. However, God is able to forgive people because Christ died to take God's punishments for sin Upon himself. The truth is, is this. When we choose to honor God with our life, God honors us. God will use those who honor Him. What does that mean? It means that children are not the future of the church, they are a part of the church. It means that the elderly are not the pastime of the church, but they are a part of the church. It means that anyone who is faithful, who is honoring God, is able to be used by God and will be used by God. Some of you know Dominican McCormick. And Dominica now is in her early 90s. And she will tell you that her greatest ministry began when she turned 80. She had served the mission field with YWAM for years and yet in a specific area of her life in the area of abortion recovery God began using her as a mentoring grandmother to women who needed it. To support, to come alongside. God was not done with her. And the honoring of of God, that God honored her as she honored him. God will use you if you honor him. It's not something that's a guess, it's not a hopeful work, it is the truth. God's word is saying that if you honor him, he will use you. He will honor you. There's no reason to start tomorrow following Christ because when you start today, he'll use you. Don't wait to think that I've got to get things absolutely right and perfect. Start honoring him today because the moment you begin honoring God with your life, he will honor you. He will use you. 2 Timothy 2.21, and I want to encourage you to write that verse down. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, simply says this. It says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Wow. Ready for every good work. Repenting of that sin, confessing Christ as Lord. Listen, that means that we also need to be aware of sin that's present in our life, even as followers of Christ. And we need to repent of it and start moving forward with Christ. The third thing is that God judges our sin. God judges our sin. In verse 31 here it says this, It says, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. He goes down in verse 34 and he says, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. 1 Peter 4 tells us that judgment starts with the household of God. Part of God's judgment is the cleansing of his house because it is his bride, his church, that is to reveal his glory to the nations. It is the bride, his church, that is to reveal the glory to the world. We are to reveal God's glory to the world. Ephesians 3 tells us that the church The followers of Christ are to reveal the very truth of who he is, his majesty, his magnificence, his greatness, and his goodness. John Calvin says this, For there's no one so great or mighty that he can avoid the misery that will rise up against him when he resists and strives against God. The rightful punishment for sin is death. And we're reminded that it is in his death that God is also purifying his people. You see, the people were being met at the tent of meeting. And the priests were going in and defiling the tent of meeting by having sex with these women. This immorality that was taking place. They were defaming the glory of God. And in that defamation of the glory of God, God goes in and he protects his people. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us of an example where Paul instructs the Corinthian church to do the same. He says this He says in verse 11, but now I'm writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's, is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's what He's saying. If somebody's in unrepentant sin, just as these priests were in unrepentant sin, they rejected the correction of their father. They're walking apart from the Lord. They are bringing and defaming the glory of God. And God protects his people by their removal. See, his mercy is actually seen in his judgment. His judgment upon the priests is actually a demonstration of his mercy and faithfulness towards the people of Israel. One of the greatest reasons for church discipline today obviously is the hope that the person that is walking in unrespentant sin will turn back towards Christ. But far too often that's told as the sole purpose and that's not the sole purpose. The other purpose of church discipline is to protect the church from false teachers and wolves amongst them. The fourth and final way that we, God's justice leads us to a life or should move us towards a life of honoring him is that God's given us Christ to make an offering on our behalf. God's given us Christ to make an offering on our behalf. Apart from that offering, we are destined to eternity apart from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that this offering, this Jesus who's been offered up, it says this, It says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He was offered up as the offering for us. I want to encourage you to write this passage down, Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11-14, it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater or more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God's justice. God's justice reveals His mercy to us. Because God's justice demands that we get what we deserve, which is death as a result of sin, and yet because of his mercy, he looks upon us. He chooses us, and he offers us forgiveness through the offering of Christ, through the offering of Christ's blood. See, our response to that work is a response of gratitude. It should move us directly towards him with a life that honors him. Tim Keller says this. He says, the universal religion of humankind is we develop a good record and give it to God and then he owes us. The gospel, though, is God develops a good record and gives it to us then we owe him. In short, to say a good person, not just Christians, can find God is to say good works are enough to find God, and they're not. Jesus has been given to us as the offering. This morning, may we no longer look on God's justice From a distance and say, gosh, I want to avoid it. But may we look at God's justice and embrace it, knowing that in his justice, we experience his mercy and his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that this morning that you would continue to reveal the power of your mercy and faithfulness as demonstrated through your justice. Father, may we no longer look at your justice as just this this pouring out of wrath upon mankind, but God, may we see your justice as the place where you demonstrate your mercy and you demonstrate your loving faithfulness to your people. Father, thank you for revealing your truth. And God, may we live lives that honor you and may we be moved to live lives that honor you as we see who you really are, a just God. And we ask this in your name, amen.